We have a long scripture passage this morning, so I'm going to just let you remain seated. We're going to read chapter 46 of Genesis through Genesis 47, verse 7. Genesis 46, 1 through Genesis 47, 7. Don't miss anything in this passage. So Israel set out with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again, and Joseph will close, close your eyes. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob and their little ones and their wives in the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. And they took their livestock and their property, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and came to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants with him, his sons and his grandsons with him, his daughters and his granddaughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel, Jacob, and his sons who went to Egypt, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanak, Palu, and Hezron, and Carmi, and the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, and Ohab, and Jachin, and Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, Merari, and the sons of Judah, Er, and Onan, and Shelah, and Perez, and Zerah, but Er and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. And the sons of Issachar, Tola and Pubah and Iob and Shimron. And the sons of Zebulun, Zerud and Elon and Jalil, Pandanaram, and his daughter Dinah, all his sons and his daughters, number 33. And the sons of Gad, Ziphion and Haggai, Shuni and Esbon, Eri and Erodi and Erili. And the sons of Asher, Imnon, Ishva and Ishvi, and Bariah and their sister Sarah. And the sons of Bariah, Heber and Malkiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to his daughter Leah. And she bore to Jacob these sixteen persons. The sons of Jacob's wife, Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. Now to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela and Becher and Ashbel, Gera and Naaman, Ehi and Rosh, Mupin and Hupin, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel, who were born to Jacob. There were 14 persons in all. And the sons of Dan, Hushim. And the sons of Naphtali, Jaziel, and Guni, and Jezer, and Shelem. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to his daughter Rachel. And she bore these to Jacob. There were seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob, who came to Egypt, his direct descendants, not including the wives of Jacob's sons, were sixty-six persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob, who came to Egypt, were seventy. Now he sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out the way before him to Goshen. 
and they came into the land of Goshen. And Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as he appeared before him, he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a long time. Then Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face, that you are still alive. And Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they've been keepers of livestock. And they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. And it shall come about when Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? That you shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, that you may live in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is loathsome to the Egyptians. Then Joseph went in and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brothers and their flocks and their herds and all that they have have come out out of the land of Canaan. And behold, they are in the land of Goshen. And he took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? So they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, both we and our fathers. And they said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, and there is no pasture for your servants' flocks. For the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now therefore, please let your servants live in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to me. The land of Egypt is at your disposal. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them live in the land of Goshen. And if you know any capable men among them, then put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought his father Jacob and presented him to Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Now what have we seen so far in this story of Joseph? Joseph, with great effort and perseverance, has led his brothers to conversion. And the power of the Holy Spirit has given them faith and obedience and repentance of the sins they committed against Joseph. There was great celebration in Egypt over the conversion of all the brothers. And now we see the whole family of Jacob's coming to settle in the land of Egypt. Fascinating story. Hard to figure why some of these things are in the Bible, but I'll tell you later on. After lunch, that's how long we're going to be here. Uh, That uh, Pharaoh and Joseph wanted his whole family from Canaan to come down to Egypt. There wasn't any food in Canaan. The uh, famine was severe. So they walked on foot from Palestine to Egypt. Get your maps out. See how long the trip is from Canaan to Egypt under a hot Middle Eastern sun. Pharaoh sent wagons for uh, Jacob because he was about 130 years old and he couldn't have walked that trip. But they brought their whole family to Egypt uh, for two reasons. God wanted them in in Egypt for two reasons. Uh, Survival and deliverance. He wanted the family of Jacob, which was the church of God, to come to Egypt because that's the only place they could survive. There wasn't any food in, in Canaan. And if this family did not survive, since they were the ancestors of Jesus in Judah, 
there would not be any savior of the world to be born from the family of Jacob as the prophets uh, prophesied. And if there was not going to be the savior of the world, you would not be saved. So they're surviving this famine is right at the heart of the gospel. Not only that, but besides survival, God wanted them to go to the incubator of Egypt for deliverance. To deliver them from the dominant influence of Canaanite culture in which they live. Jacob's family was small. And in Canaan at the time, there were all kinds of city-states and tribes. All of them extremely wicked extremely immoral, and they were already beginning to influence Jacob's family. Some of Joseph's sons had committed murder, committed incest, lied, stole, deceived. And if they kept on like that, and the whole family of Jacob, which is the church, the whole family of Jerusalem just become more and more and more wicked wouldn't be a savior of the world to be born from that family. So what we have in chapter 46 and 47 is the fulfillment of prophecy. I want you to turn back with me to Genesis 15. This prophecy is specific. It says in Genesis 15... And verse 12. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that's not theirs. Stop. Abraham and his children were in Canaan at the time. And now God is prophesying your children are going to go to a land that's not their own, i.e. Egypt, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. That's the story of Exodus. I will also judge the nation, Egypt, whom they will serve, and afterwards they will come out with many possessions, so after Pharaoh let them go, after the death of firstborn Egyptians, they pass through the Red Sea, and they have all the spoils of Egypt with them, gold and silver and ivory. And they take the spoils of the Egyptians to help build a Christian culture back in Canaan, while Pharaoh and his armies drowned in the Red Sea. And... Verse 15, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. Abraham, you shall be buried at a good old age. Then, in the fourth generation, they, that is your descendants, shall return here to Canaan from Egypt. For, because the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. What in the world does that mean? Your people are going to go to Egypt. They are going to become slaves for a good while. And then God's going to punish that nation and let the people go back to their land where they'll be blessed. That's a 400-year period. And they're not going to go back until... The iniquity of the Amorite is complete. Now, who are the Amorites? They were the Canaanites. That's another word for some of the Canaanites, the major Canaanite city-states. Their, their evil influence on the church under Abraham was devastating. So God says you're going to incubate in Egypt until that dominant power of the Amorites and Canaanites has been broken. 
and it will not be as big a threat to you as it is now. Everything turned out exactly the way this prophecy said because God is sovereign. Why is it that prophecy from God always comes true? Because God has foreordained everything that comes to pass. So go back to Genesis 46, and you see things are happening exactly like God told Abraham so long ago. So in verse 1, Israel, which is the covenant name for Jacob, and the word Israel means he who prevails with God. So Israel set out with all he had and came to Beersheba, which is where his granddaddy lived, and was right on the edge of the promised land. And as he was leaving the promised land, right on the edge in Beersheba, he offered sacrifices before he began his trek. Now, what were the purpose of these sacrifices? Three reasons. Number one, Jacob is testifying to the world. I might be leaving the land of Goshen, but I'm not leaving the religion of my fathers. I'm not leaving my God and my Savior and my protector. I still believe in the living God. I still believe in Jehovah, El Shaddai. And though I'm going a long distance, I am not leaving him. Second reason. Abraham knew that the only way you could approach God is by bloody sacrifices. You could not approach God in any way you chose. You may only approach God in the way he commands. And God says he may only be approached by means of bloody sacrifice. There has to be a bloody sacrifice as the basis of our acceptance with God. That's why you have all the bloody sacrifices of lambs and goats and sheep cows and all the rest in the Old Testament. They all pointed to that one sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Without the shedding of blood, without the shedding of his blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, you know, the two things that I've just said are two of the things most repulsive about Christianity by this world. One, is no matter how sincere you are in believing something, no matter how real you feel like when you're approaching God by your own opinion, you can't, you're not. Your opinion, your feelings mean absolutely nothing. You may only approach God in the way he's commanded, not in anything that you feel. That your acceptance with God is not based upon your feeling. It's not based upon what you think, that your, your sincerity, your feeling, your opinions have nothing to do with it. You may only approach God in the way he has commanded, and he's commanded it in his word. Because if you seek to approach God on your own terms, you're only fooling yourselves. You're making yourself God, and you're worshiping an idol. I like what a man said a long time ago to me. He said, Joe, when a rationalist, somebody who believes that reason is a source of truth, when a rationalist says, uh, a rationalist says, God is what I think him to be. And an empiricist, somebody who depends upon his feelings to determine what he believes, said, God is what I feel him to be. And then there was a German atheist uh, named Feuerbach who said to both of them, Mr. Rationalist, when you say God is what I think him to be, and Mr. Empiricist, 
When you're saying man is what I feel him to be, you're only saying man with a loud voice. Because if God is what I think him to be, he's just an extension of your thought, that's all. And if God is what you feel him to be, he's just an extension of your feelings, and that's all. But what's the thing that the world hates? There is a living and true God. He's not a figment of your feelings or your imagination or your reason. And the only way you can know that God is by submitting to his revelation of himself in the pages of Holy Scripture. That's why Abraham made sacrifices. And that's why the world hates Christianity. You can't approach God on your own terms. And you know, there's something else very uh, uh, disgusting about what Christianity says we must do to modern man. We say you can only come to God by means of a bloody sacrifice. And modern man says to you, how primitive, uh, primitive, how pathetic, how unintellectual to think that I, a modern man, has to have a bloody sacrifice to get to the infinite God of the universe. I don't like that. It just is not in accord with my high intellectual powers. And he hates the idea that you have to have a propitiation before you can get to the living God. It's true, nevertheless. And then there's a third reason why Jacob gave these sacrifices. And that is he was telling the world that when I go to Egypt, I'm not changing my religion. I'm going to worship the same God I'm worshiping now. The God I'm going to worship in Egypt is the same God I'm worshiping now. What was he saying in New Testament terms? Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, whether I'm in Canaan or whether I'm in Egypt. So as he leaves the land of Canaan, he goes to Egypt, he offers these sacrifices. Now understand what this meant for, for Jacob. Jacob is leaving the land of promise. Jacob is leaving the land where God told him, in this land you're going to prosper of Canaan, you're going to be blessed, your seed's going to be greater than the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore, your, my blessing is going to rest upon all your descendants, and you are going to bring the blessings of God upon all the other nations of the world from this base in Canaan. And Jacob saying, and I'm leaving Canaan. I'm going to Egypt. Now, he wasn't going to Egypt out of unbelief or disobedience. God told him to go to Egypt. Unlike Abraham and Isaac, they fled uh, uh, because of famine in earlier times, but it was out of fear, not faith. But now Jacob is doing what God told him to do. I want you to leave the one place in all the world where I said you'd live in a land flowing with milk and honey. Jacob's 130 years old. God told him this is the promised land. And now God's telling me to leave. So you can understand the burden and the stress in this godly old man's life as he thinks about leaving the promised land. I'm sure he needs some reassurance right at this point. I'm sure he needs some strengthening at this point. We do know he needed physical strengthening because he's 130 years old. So Pharaoh gave him a, a, some wagons so he wouldn't have to walk that distance. But he'd also need spiritual reassurance. I need for God to tell me I'm not making the biggest mistake in my life. 
I need for God to tell me that I'm not throwing away the promises of the covenant by going to Egypt. So that's what happens next. Verse 2, And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again, and Joseph will close your eyes. So God gave Jacob that reassurance, came to him in a vision at night. I think God usually came to people in visions at night uh, was to highlight the brightness and the splendor of his glory in that vision. Here's darkness all around, and here's this splendorous vision of the living God. And you notice whenever God reveals himself and acts in history and comes into history in a vision, he always accompanies that vision with words. He doesn't just leave you a picture. You know what one of the greatest myths is? picture is worth a thousand words. If that's true, why didn't God give us a picture book? Why did he give us this big, thick book full of nothing but words and no pictures? So whenever God reveals himself into history and enters into history and acts into history, he always uh, includes in that vision words that we can understand to explain what that vision meant. So he wouldn't leave it up to us to try to make sense out of it ourselves. And so in verse 2, God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. He said, here I am. And then God said to him, I'm God. I'm the God of your father. Don't be afraid. Go on down to Egypt. I'll make a great nation out of you. You see what uh, Jacob's called in this verse? He's called Jacob twice. Do you know in Hebrew culture and first century culture, if you called somebody by his first name twice, that was an expression of affection and love. Jacob, Jacob. Remember David, when the son Absalom rebelled against him? David, with a broken heart, said, Absalom, Absalom, my son. Remember when Paul was going to Damascus to persecute Christians? The risen Christ appears to him and says, Saul, Saul. Jacob, Jacob. But then there's a scary verse in the New Testament in Matthew 7 where when Jesus comes back, there are going to be people who will give him mock expressions of affections. Lord, did we do not do glorious things in your name? They spoke to Jesus, will speak to Jesus with words of affection when in their lives they're disobedient to him. So when those people with feigned affection come to Jesus on Judgment Day and said, Lord, Lord, Jesus will say to them, I don't accept your words of affection. Depart from me. I never knew you. Because you didn't manifest that affection in obedience. So God here is reassuring Israel of his love for him. 
And he says to Jacob, I, notice what he calls himself. I am God, the God of your father. Now, there are places where we can see that he's the God of his fathers. But why did God identify himself simply as, I am God, the God of your father. I'll be with you, Jacob, just like I was with your father and I was with your grandfather. Whether you're in Canaan or whether you're in the land of Egypt or wherever you'll be, I'll be with you. And as long as I'm with you, you're safe. And as long as I am with you, the promises will come true. But I think there's another reason why God uh, called himself by this name. I am the God of your father, Isaac. Uh, he was telling Jacob, Jacob, in living for me, use history. No history. I'm the God of your father, Isaac, a man who you knew who actually lived. He had his own historical moment. You know about the things that he did in his life for me. So as you go into Egypt, you're going to need an encouragement of history. You're going to be in an Egyptian culture now. An Egyptian culture that's been around for century upon century upon century. And you're going to be outnumbered. And that's why you need to know about your own history. So that when you stand in the face of the Egyptians with all of their history books, say, I got my own historical figures. They're real. I'm not here alone by myself. The time when I was in seminary in about 1968, there was this liberal professor that came to speak. And the professors at the seminary I attended were all liberal. There was one old man who was on the verge of retiring. He was 70 years old. Back then, I thought 70 was old. And so his name was William Charles Robinson. And after this guy's speech, they invited the students to come to the student lounge and ask him questions. So dozens of students came into the student lounge to ask this guy questions because he was so famous and so innovative. And 99% of those students were liberal. And then there was one evangelical. And that's why you know about this story, because he's telling you this story. <laughs> and Dr. William Charles Robinson was there. So they were eating right out of this liberal's hand. Then old Dr. Robbie, who was very weak, had a very soft voice, was nowhere near the charmer as the liberal. Started quoting names. And he went through 2,000 years of church history and gave quotation after quotation after quotation from great men of God to refute the liberal. He would quote Athanasius. He would quote Christenstum. He would quote Augustine. He would quote Calvin. He would quote John Knox. He would quote Jonathan Edwards. And he went through 2,000 years as if drawing to his side two, an army of 2,000 people. And uh, the liberal just tucked his tail between his legs and left. He couldn't handle him. Robbie was an old man, but he wasn't there by himself, and he was very conscious of the fact. Though he was outnumbered by students in that room, he was not outnumbered. He could call to his side an army of Christian heroes. There are going to be a lot of times in this culture when you're going to be the only one standing. Other Christians have fled. Christians have sold out. 
They have uh, not stood their ground. And you're going to be the only one left standing. And it'll be very hard for you to stand firm there in the faith and standing firm for the truth if you think you're the only one there, the only one that's ever believed this, the only one that ever had these views. It'll be hard to stay true and to stand fast with such a majority of enemies unless you know church history. You know church history. You know they're outnumbered. And you don't have any intention of being afraid of their faces or running out of the room like a coward. That's what God's doing to Isaac. I'm the God of your father. You got a hero. You got somebody else standing with you. You're not standing by yourself in the land of Egypt. What do you know about church history? One time years ago, about 10 years ago, when I was a, 15 years ago, I was in another church. I would preach on Sunday nights on church history. And one man came up to me after a sermon and said, Joe, I hate church history. I can't stand on it. Stand it. You're wasting your time. Uh, preaching on church history. I said, well, tell God that. Because God's the one that says, you're surrounded with such a great cloud of witnesses. Run the race of life in the light of that cloud of witnesses. Know who they are. Know as you're running that around that racetrack, and your lungs are burning, and your legs are cramping, you stay on that racetrack because you know you have thousands upon thousands of people in the bleachers of history cheering you on. But if you don't know, there's a cloud of witnesses to encourage you. You won't last long on the track. So he says to Jacob, I am God, the God of your father. Don't be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I'll make you a great nation there. <laughs> and boy, did he. Now, when uh, Jacob takes his family to Egypt, there's about 70 people in his family. Uh, there are several more servants and slaves. And also some people from various other tribes in Canaan that joined up with the, with the family of Jacob. So all in all, there are about 300 people. 150 married couples. 150 married couples. A married couple would start having children when they're 15. The average size of a family uh, was five, four or five or six. They'd be a new generation of families every 15 years. God said, Abraham, Jacob, I'm going to send you to Egypt and you're going to become a great nation in Egypt. So when they leave Canaan, there are only about 300 members of the church. 300 people in the family of Jacob. 70 direct heirs. 400 years later, that is about four generations, 400 years later, when Israel left Egypt under Moses, there were eight, there were six, there were three million Israelites. And the book of Exodus begins, it says there's 600,000 men ready to fight. If there were 600,000 men, 
there were about three million people in the church. Later. Doesn't matter where you are, doesn't matter how old you are, doesn't matter how outnumbered you are. God will always be faithful to his promise. It says in verse 4, I'll go down with you to Egypt. I will surely bring you, that is your family, back to Canaan again. Jacob, Joseph, put his fingers on your eyes. You're going to die in Egypt. This is the last time you're going to see Canaan. You're in Bathsheba. You're leaving the promised land. Jacob, you will never see the land of promise again. We'll die in Egypt. And your son will close your eyes in death. When you go back, your people go back to Egypt, there'll be three million of them. Now, one little thing, and I'm not, this is only a small part of my sermon, so I hate not going on, but I can't. It's getting late. Uh, David, why, why did it make the point of saying that Joseph, didn't just say Joseph, Jacob would die in Egypt, but that Joseph would close your eyes in Jacob? in Egypt. That was a sign of affection and deep respect for Jacob's dead body. What does that say about cremation? Is cremation a sign of deep respect and affection? or a relative's body when you throw him or her in the fire and he burns up like somebody in hell. Cremation is tremendously unbiblical and displeasing to God. So there must always be in the life of the church and there is throughout the scriptures there was always a deep, respectful, affectionate treatment of a dead brother or sister or husband or wife or mother or father. Nobody was cremated except the bad guys. And so don't even consider cremation. Jesus wasn't cremated, and I want to be buried like Jesus was. The church has always treated its dead with respect. You say, well, my Parents or my relatives say that when they die, they want to be cremated. And if you're responsible for their estate, you do not have to do what they tell you. They're dead. <laughs> They'll never know how you buried them. So even if they tell you to cremate them, don't do it. So that's just a side that here Joseph treated his daddy with deep respect. In verse 5, Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father and their little ones and their wives in the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. And they took their livestock and their property, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and came to Egypt. Jacob and his descendants with him. His sons and his grandsons with him. His daughters and his granddaughters and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel. And then we go through that whole list that's the church membership role of the church in Jacob's day, including some wives and slaves. 
These are all the direct descendants of Jacob. And it was from these 70 people that Israel, the new Israel, the church of God, be more numerous the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. And through them, every nation on the face of the earth will be blessed. Now, I want to make one last point. Because it's often used to refute our view of the infallibility of Scripture. I want you to turn to the book of Acts. And the sermon that Stephen preached right before he became a martyr. Right before they killed him. And this whole sermon is simply a recapitulation of the history of the church of the Old Testament. It's a wonderful summary of how God worked in the lives of men like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and all the rest. And then there's verse 14. And Joseph sent word and invited Jacob, his father, and all his relatives to come with him, 75 persons in all. God said in Genesis 46, there were 70 persons. 70 is not 75. Stephen <laughs> says there were 75. So is one of these two texts an error? Was there 70 or was there 75? That makes all the difference in the world if you want to believe there are no mistakes in the Bible. Is one of these two lists mistaken? And of course the answer is no. Neither one are mistaken because we come to both passages from the perspective that there are no errors in the Bible. There are some difficult places. And it takes a lot of thought and explaining to figure out what they mean. There's no contradictions in the Bible, but there are some difficult places. And this is a difficult place. So how can we say that God told Jacob there were 70 people that went with Jacob down to Egypt, and Stephen in his death said there were 75? Well, I think there's a perfectly good ex explanation. Liberals won't take this explanation because they think you're just playing games, but it's really a good explanation. You see, by Joseph, by, by uh, Stephen's day, there were two editions of the Old Testament. There was the Hebrew Old Testament, and there was the Greek Old Testament called the Septuagint. And Stephen, many times here, is quoting from the Septuagint. Now, the Hebrew Old Testament says there are 70 people that went with Jacob. But the Greek Old Testament says there were 75. Uh, because they included five names that God didn't include in Genesis 46. In the Greek Old Testament, it says that besides the 70 mentioned in Genesis 46, uh, who, a son and a grandson of Manasseh were not included. Manasseh was David's son. And there were three sons and grandsons of Ephraim, David's other son that for some reason were not included. So there's your 75. So I just want you to know that there are answers to hard things in the Bible. So when people bring these things before you and say, ah, here's a contradiction, here's a contradiction. If, it's con if this isn't true here, how in the world do you believe what it says about Jesus over there? 
And, of course, that is the issue. If the Bible is mistaken in one place, how do we know that it's not mistaken about what it says about Jesus? So you don't have to get in, give in to them. You don't have to be intimidated by them. There are several difficult places in the Bible, and people have answered all of them. If you want a good book that just goes through all the texts in the Bible that the liberals use as difficult places, get E.J. Young, Edward J. Young's book, Thy Word is Truth. And he goes through all these passages. There's not one word in the whole Bible that you don't have to trust. You can trust every word to be true. So what we've been talking about now with Joseph, every word of that is true. Someday when we get to the book of Acts, we'll preach again. Everything in this book is true. Every word, all 66 chapters. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob believed that word no matter what. They said, we're going to worship our God. Nothing's going to change whether we're in Egypt or Canaan. That's the way you should live your life. Nothing's going to change about what I believe or how I live or how I relate to people. No matter who I am with, no matter where I am in this world, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Learn church history. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for the, uh, the specific promises you made to Jacob and the specific way you made them come true. Thank you for the specific promises you made to us in your word and the specific way you're going to cause them to come true. And help us to trust in your faithfulness no matter what we see going on around us. For Christ's sake, amen.